0: Again, the URL is unchangedcrypto.substack.com. Hi everyone, welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Crypto.law, aka Kelman Law, is a New York law firm run by some of the first lawyers to enter crypto in 2013 with expertise in litigation, dispute resolution, and anti-money laundering email them at info@kelman.law at why should you get an mco visa card from crypto.com first it's a beautiful metal card you can top up the card with crypto and spend anywhere visa is accepted you also get up to 5% back on all spending you know they'll pay for your spotify and netflix too you'll love the unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates if you travel a lot eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with transparent fees. Create an account today at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O.com. Today's guest is Noelle Atchison, Director of Research at Coindesk.
1: Welcome, Noelle. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me.
0: I just realized that this is the second week in a row that I've had someone on from Coindesk. Last week's guest was Brady Dale. There's just so much going on.
1: (laughs) There's just so much going on.
0: Yes. And I should also disclose that Coindesk has been a sponsor of my podcasts. Um, So all anyone's been able to talk about this week is the coronavirus. And it's had a somewhat surprising effect on the traditional financial markets, which you wrote about. Why don't you describe what happened there before we even talk crypto?
1: What we're seeing is a fascinating shift in narratives, not just in Bitcoin, but actually in absolutely every single asset out there. What's particularly interesting with what's happening in Bitcoin is that it is now obviously not the safe haven that we all thought it – we all hoped it would be. I don't say we thought it would be, but the, we all hoped it would be. This definitely closes the door on that narrative, which is something that we're all going to have to digest. Yeah. What's, what, You know the saying when in a crisis all correlations go to one? Well, that is what we're seeing now. And what we're, we're seeing that because of some fundamental shifts in Bitcoin's – I guess, use case and also the nature of the participants in the Bitcoin ecosystem. I mean, we can this re- we can rewind a bit and talk about why Bitcoin had that safe haven narrative to start with. Largely because uh, largely it makes sense. I mean, Bitcoin is a totally different type of technology. It has totally different economic premises, hard cap on supply, no way it can be manipulated, decentralized asset, et etc. et cetera. So therefore, there's no way it can be correlated. And that makes it a safe haven. All safe havens are uncorrelated. You want to hold something that is going to hold its value while everything else isn't. But as we've seen, Bitcoin doesn't necessarily behave that way. We all wanted it to though, so we wanted Bitcoin to be the alternative, the thing that was totally outside of the system and did not react like everything else did. So we started, um, spreading the word. People started paying attention to Bitcoin. The market infrastructure started developing. Institutional investors started putting it in their portfolios as a decorrelate, as an uncorrelated asset, which the numbers, the numbers do show some form, some lack of correlation that backs it up. Then the traders started coming in. Traders are there for volatility. They don't really care about the premise very much. I mean, I'm I'm sure many of them do, but mainly they're there to make money on the volatility. They love the volatility. That has changed the very nature of Bitcoin's behavior. Volatility is one thing that detracts from the safe haven narrative. You can't really have a safe haven that is volatile. Another thing that detracts from the safe haven narrative is the risk of regulation, We know that Bitcoin will continue whatever happens, and we know that there's no way to stop it. But if a major economic center decided to clamp down, decided to ban it even, while Bitcoin would continue, it would certainly have a different economic outlook. It would not have perhaps the value profile that it has today. So traders are betting on that. They're betting on the volatility that hinges on all of these factors going on. And They therefore will trade Bitcoin along with all of the other assets that respond to volatility. And especially when things get really crazy, like they have this week, Bitcoin is going to react like all the other asset classes. And as we've seen today, I mean, it's a massive fault today. They're heading south. Well, one thing
0: that interested me about what you said is you said the regulatory risk. And I actually feel like in recent weeks there's been um, kind of more hope on that horizon with obviously the Indian Supreme Court uh, overturning the ban on Bitcoin there. And then now we see that South Korea is kind of bringing that into its regulatory regime. So what are the risks still when it comes to regulation with Bitcoin?
1: I should caveat that with saying I don't think there is a huge regulatory risk. I personally don't think that there is. It doesn't make any sense because most of the economic centers are smart enough to realize that it's a fairly futile endeavor. However, weird things can happen and there is an outside risk that a big ban could come down, say the United States decides to do something crazy like that. It's not totally out of the question. Very, very unlikely, I would like to say. I personally believe that the regulatory risk is diminishing. I personally believe that we are going to see greater adoption going forward in various economic centers of the world. And I personally believe that the regulatory moves that we're seeing in very important, in very important economic centers are going to help consolidate Bitcoin's eventual use or eventual status as a safe haven. We're just a long way from that yet. Right now, the market moves are dominated by traders who are in it for profit. That's what traders do. And we wanted that. We actually wanted that liquidity for Bitcoin. The greater the liquidity, the greater the likelihood that the institutional investors, remember that big wall of institutional money we used to talk about? The greater the likelihood that the institutional investors will come in. So in a way, we built this house that is now crumbling down around us. The market structure has evolved to favor traders. I mean, high-frequency trading is a big thing now. Leverage is a very important feature of the market, but that does exacerbate the swings. I don't know if you've seen just the liquidations on BitMEX this morning. That is I going did. to make Bitcoin even more volatile, which makes it even less of a safe haven in the short term, makes it even more attractive to traders, which can become a self-perpetuating loop, except for the major shifts in regulation that you pointed out that we are seeing and what could potentially end up being very significant economic centers for Bitcoin development.
0: And so, you know, you've talked about how you feel like this is kind of the situation now, but that over the long term, things could change. So what does that picture look like for Bitcoin? And how does that change
1: happen? I believe it looks like greater regulatory acceptance. In most um, most of the economies that we are familiar with, uh, Bitcoin is part of the landscape. Not part of most institutional portfolios yet. That may well change also with time once things start to settle down. I believe that regulatory clarity, which we are increasingly getting over here in Europe and in Asia, that's also improving, that will encourage what we call investment, as opposed to trading, longer term investment. And especially given the economic turmoil out there, I think it's pretty safe to say that it looks like we're going to recession, it will become more apparent to investors and to regulators that Bitcoin does not depend on economic metrics. It is not correlated to the world economy at large. That is going to increase the safe haven story it's going to support the safe haven story for sure it's going to broaden the type of participant that is in the market and hopefully that way make us less vulnerable to the whims of the trading community and at the same time that will encourage development for a whole host of use cases we probably can't even imagine yet and just
0: for the short-term You know, as we're watching the impact of the coronavirus play out, like, what are some of the different scenarios you see that having on Bitcoin for the next, I guess, year or two?
1: To be honest, I don't think that a lot of attention will be on Bitcoin because of the coronavirus. I think that with the coronavirus scare, which is getting pretty alarming, I mean, you're in New York, I'm over here in Europe, and we were just chatting before we went on the air about what's going on in our in our relative in our respective neighborhoods. It is it is quite something. I think everyone's just going to be focusing on hunkering down and getting through the next few weeks and seeing what happens with our loved ones and our our, our professional environments as well. But going forward, economic recession, uncorrelated asset, a much more obvious connection there. And we need to bear in mind that there's a very fundamental event coming up in the Bitcoin community in just a few weeks, which is the halving. Now, what does the halving have to do with coronavirus? Absolutely nothing. But what the halving will do, especially because of the media attention that will be thrown on this, as always happens around these halvings, is highlight how different this is. It will highlight the innovation behind this technology. And every halving does bring mainstream attention, mainstream interest at a time that things are really weird anyway, at a time when people are probably thinking, oh, okay, things are different. Maybe I should open my scope a bit and open my mind and look at other alternatives when it comes to investment assets, when it comes to payment mechanisms, when it comes to economic systems even. Hmm. All right, we're going to dive a little
0: bit more into the impact of the Bitcoin having on Bitcoin amidst the coronavirus in a second. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Are you interested in getting into the cryptocurrency markets, but don't know where to start building your portfolio? eToro has the answer for you. It's called CopyTrader by eToro. With CopyTrader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders at the exact price in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply sign up and copy the trader of your choice. Any profits they make, you do too, proportional to your investment. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees, all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at eToro.com. That's E E-T-O-R-O T O R O.com. Why should you get an MCO Visa card from Crypto.com? First, it's a beautiful metal card. You can top up the card with crypto and spend anywhere Visa is accepted. You also get up to 5% back on all spending. You know they'll pay for your Spotify and Netflix too. You'll love the unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates if you travel a lot. There are so many cool perks loaded in one card. Download the Crypto.com app now. Back to my conversation with Noelle Atchison. So in terms of the halving though, because we've seen that the coronavirus has had such a, a, a negative impact on the price of Bitcoin, what does that mean for the survival of miners at that time?
1: It is worrying what's going on with miners at the moment. And we have been looking at figures recently that show that they have been investing heavily in equipment. They've been also selling down their inventories in, in the light of the recent slump to be able to continue to cover costs. So yes, it is worrying. However, if there is a big shakeout in the miner community, that will affect the hash rate. The economics will then bring other miners in as mining becomes profitable again because of the lower costs involved. And it will self-correct. Of course, all of this is self supposition. This is how Bitcoin was designed to work. It probably hasn't had the kind of test that it's having today, but it has had many tests before. I mean, the fall that we've seen so far today is not the worst fall that Bitcoin has had. I think it's something like the sixth or seventh worst. The others were obviously in, tw- the were since 2013, but there have been much deeper crises to the network and Bitcoin has survived. I personally am convinced that it will survive this. The miner economics is something we should keep an eye on. But most miners, these days anyway, are professionals, they're businesses, and they're in it for the long term. Back in Bitcoin's early days, there was probably more volatility with you know, h- hobby miners, I guess we can call them that, hobby miners switching their machines on and off. And also the machines didn't require the same level of investment that they do today. So it was a much more fluid Ecosystem. Today, they're professional businesses, and many of them have been hedging in the derivatives markets, which didn't exist the last time Bitcoin went through this kind of crisis. So, there is some protection there. I'm not saying that all of them have, many of them probably haven't, but some have. This is a professional sector now rather than the hobbyists that we used to have back in the last time we had this sort of turmoil.
0: That is true. That is true, which which is good. But I do feel like this was not a scenario that many of them may have accounted for. Um, I think before going to record, I saw uh, the price was kind of in this $6,000 range, which obviously uh, is quite a bit lower than I think a lot of people were expecting. Um, yeah. So one other thing that I wanted to ask you about was you had written about – um, some other factors and how that would affect Bitcoin. Like you talked about the impact of the coronavirus on supply chains and political uncertainty and inflation, and felt that in the long run, that the, the things like this could result in um, a different impact on Bitcoin. So, what do you see happening with that?
1: I. I look at Bitcoin in the macro context often, partly because it's a very fascinating exercise to do, but also partly because it's what traditional investors are going to be doing. How does Bitcoin fit into the macro context? This, of course, was before things really got crazy when it made sense to do that. Right now, there's no such thing as context really, is there? But (laughs) the role that of Bitcoin in the macro context – is going to change as the macro context changes. We are going to come in for a type of, I fully expect currency wars to emerge, not just as a result of the tensions from the coronavirus, but also the oil shock, which is happening in the side. That's a major impact, which we haven't really seen the full results of yet. Currency wars are going to shed light on the manipulations of central banks. They're also going to introduce perhaps some inflation, which was probably going to be coming in anyhow because of the retreat, the unwanted of globalization due to the constriction of supply chains triggered by the coronavirus. Although it's probably worth pointing out that the globalization, the, the unwinding started even before the coronavirus became a massive scare through tariffs and populism and borders being um, high, higher walls being erected at borders, I should say. So that was a trend that was happening anyway. The coronavirus has made that you know, 100 times worse, and that is going to impact on inflation more broadly. That is going to impact on monetary policy more broadly, and that is going to focus attention on Bitcoin's lack of monetary policy, if you will. It's a totally new paradigm that the world did not have last time it went through deep financial convulsions back in 2008, which was the last time we remember there being this kind of a crisis. Bitcoin wasn't around yet. this kind of crisis is also very different. The the crisis back in 2008 was a debt-triggered crisis. Interest rates could make an impact on a debt-triggered crisis. Interest rates can't make an impact on a supply-triggered crisis, which is what we're dealing with now. And also in a debt-triggered crisis, currencies themselves don't have the protagonist role that they're going to have in this supply-driven crisis that we're heading into. And when currencies are the center of attention, Bitcoin is a currency, okay? It's not recognized by many economic centers as a currency officially. I think that will change.
0: One thing is also in a report you did last year, you looked at how closely it's correlated with gold, and I wondered um, if you could, you know, also, you know, talk about historically whether or not it's been correlated with gold, but then also how it's performing, uh, or uh, yeah, what its performance looks like against gold now with the coronavirus impact on the markets.
1: Correlation. Everything's correlated at the moment because everything's going (laughs) south. Gold has held up pretty well, but gold itself is not the safe haven it used to be. Gold has become, as Bitcoin has that we were discussing earlier, gold has become financialized. Gold does not have the same monetary policy. Gold is a real asset like Bitcoin, but gold is also susceptible to margin calls. And the big swings that we've seen in gold are largely due to that. They're due to traders liquidating positions because they probably have margin calls elsewhere. When you're heading for the exit, you don't really care what you throw out the window. I'm sure I'm mixing metaphors there, but I think you know, I think you get what I'm trying to say there. <laughs> I Also, and this is a confession I'll make to you, I'm skeptical of correlation figures generally. I mean, correlations can be calculated in many different ways. And depending on how you frame the figures, you can get one result or another. There's a statisticians have a wonderful saying, which I love, which is if you torture numbers long enough, they'll tell you anything that you want them to. And the same (laughs) with correlation. We can agree that Bitcoin traditionally has not been correlated with real assets, but we can isolate times when they have been. Same with gold. We can agree that Bitcoin is more correlated to gold than it is to the S&P 500, perhaps, but we can show you timeframes in which that relationship doesn't hold. So correlations are a broad stroke to get more interested in an asset class or not. But when it comes to actually banking decisions on them, using that figure to uh, allocate assets in your portfolio, it's probably worth looking at the bigger picture and not just relying on those numbers. Is Bitcoin correlated to gold? It entirely depends what kind of an answer you're looking for.
0: And speaking of correlations, though, also, I wondered uh, whether or not Bitcoin is starting to decouple from the other crypto assets and act like a digital gold.
1: Yes, I, I actually was looking at that just the other day. I was wondering how is Bitcoin doing compared to the others today. Everything's just very correlated because everything <laughs> is heading <laughs> south fast. But it is, it has been uh, un- relatively uncorrelated, uh, relative outperformance. But I think that's a blip. I don't. And again, you move the time frames on your correlations, and you get very different answers. We saw a time last year. You probably remember this. I'm sure you did a podcast on it where Bitcoins. Um, what's the word, uh, dominance? Yes, Bitcoin's dominance was increasing to worrying levels, in fact. There was a worry that Bitcoin would crowd out everything else in the sector. That sort of self-corrected as of, as the uh, turmoil in the altcoins, I'll call them that, started to quieten down and some interesting use cases and interesting investment opportunities started to emerge. And Ether has outperformed Bitcoin easily so far this year. I haven't looked at the relative performance after today, of course. Ether today suffered its large largest fall in percentage terms ever. So maybe that's changed now. But Etherhub up until a few days ago was significantly outperforming Bitcoin, which does hint at a realignment of the crypto asset class as a whole. Significant? Not really, because we are still talking just a few percentage points difference, but trends that are worth keeping an eye on. All right.
0: Well, um, how are you faring amidst the coronavirus outbreak in
1: Europe? It's very interesting, strange. Very strange. I live in Madrid, and they've closed schools, which my daughter is not unhappy about. And supermarket <laughs> shelves are looking a little bit more bare than usual. But uh, we shall we shall see how it goes. We just need to. We will all get through this. This is one thing that we know. And I will throw in a plug for European healthcare systems. We have a good healthcare system here in Spain. <laughs> Obviously, there's a huge risk. It will get totally overwhelmed. It's probable it will get totally overwhelmed, as will all healthcare systems everywhere. But we will get through this.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I hope so. I I. How, how are things where would, you are? What I would say is that I I think that we as citizens can do something to keep the healthcare systems from being overwhelmed, but it requires a little bit of sacrifice from all of us, which is to stay in if you're healthy. So, um, yeah, I'm doing fine. I was already staying in all the time because I'm trying to finish my book so like for me this isn't a big change <laughs> when's your book do you out um oh it like more than a little more than a year from now because it's wow. not done <laughs> it's a lot of work <laughs> yeah anyway well it's been great having you on the show thank you so much for joining us um on unconfirmed it's been fun laura thank you don't forget next up is the news recap stick around for this week in crypto after this short break Crypto.Law is run by Crypto OGs in New York who understand crypto and fintech. They were already operating in the space back in 2013 and they accept crypto as payment. One of the partners, Zachary Kelman, is known for drafting a bill submitted to the U.S. Congress in 2014 aimed at exempting on-chain Bitcoin transactions from U.S. regulations. The other founding partner, his brother Daniel Kelman, became well-known in the crypto law space for his work in the Mt. Gox Civil Rehabilitation. So if you operate a fintech business or have a dispute with some person or a business involving crypto, or you just need legal advice related to crypto, info at kelman.law. That's K-E-L-M-A-N dot or just go to their website at www.crypto.law. When you think crypto, think Kelman. Hi, everyone. I'm going to do something a bit unusual today. And instead of discussing crypto news, I'm going to talk about coronavirus and what you can do. Humanity faces the gravest imminent danger I've seen in my lifetime from coronavirus, climate change being the gravest slow-moving danger. As much as you and I are obsessed with and love crypto, I'm sure to all of us our families and friends are even more important. While it's obviously off my beat and off the topic of the show to cover this, the threat is so large that I realized I would regret not using this platform, however small, to try to help out and bend the trajectory of the virus here in the U.S., given our pretty abysmally bad start in our fight against it. Just to establish my credentials, some of you may not know this, but I did uh, get my master's in science journalism, and I have covered science before as a journalist. Hopefully, these tips will be helpful to you and your loved ones. This episode will be slightly more U.S. focused, but since I believe many of my listeners are either in the U.S. or in countries undergoing a similar situation with the coronavirus, I believe the information here and these tips will be broadly applicable. The first thing is, there's no need to panic. Panic is the absolute worst thing you can do in a situation like this. What you want to do instead is take care of yourself first, sort of like putting the the mask over your face first. During what will likely be a stressful time, make sure to do one relaxing thing a day, whether that's exercise or meditation or a nap or a bath, just whatever will help keep you in a level-headed state. Then calmly, rationally seek out knowledge from reliable sources. I will be referencing some articles and links for people to read and follow. You can check the show notes for those links. Armed with this knowledge, you can make smart decisions, help others to do so as well, and collectively, we can all do our part to help the virus have as minimal impact as possible. Second, it's really important to take care of your own body and health during this time. This boosts your immune system, making you less susceptible to any health issue, which helps reduce what is likely to be a big burden on the healthcare system in the coming months. It also gives you a clearer head with which to make better decisions when you're faced with tough choices. And additionally, it keeps you available to help our neighbors, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, and immunocompromised friends and family and anyone else who might need our help our doctors, nurses, and healthcare practitioners are going to have their hands full. If we keep our bodies in good shape, we can assist others in this interconnected world in which we live. Okay, now we're going to get into the nitty-gritty. At the moment, unless something major changes, the U.S. is going to have to fight this battle pretty much blindly from a data standpoint. We are so far behind where we need to be with testing That I believe we no longer have time to catch up. A few weeks ago, I did have hope that if we could ramp up quickly, we could still pursue a strategy of containment, but I believe that window has closed. Also, it appears the chemicals used in the tests are in short supply. So between the lack of test kits, the tight supply in chemical reagents, and even the lack of capacity in labs to do testing on the scale needed— I don't think aggressive testing is a viable solution anymore. From the example of the Koreans, however, I would say we hopefully now know that that would be the best strategy for future viruses. I would love it if by some miracle this situation with the US testing changes, but even if it does, like I said, I don't think we have the time to do all the tests and contain this. The virus is already brewing in a big way and we're going to see the effects of the current spread sometime soon as there's a lag between infection and illness. But not all hope is lost. We still have another data point that can help us, which is what I believe is the number one most important metric to focus on, the guideline to use when making all our choices from now on. As far as I can tell, what determines whether or not a society suffers tremendously from the coronavirus or minimally is how burdened our healthcare systems become. I got into a little spat with somebody on Facebook the other day because she was quibbling about the air quotes, true case fatality rate. Okay, people, there is no true case fatality rate that exists in some ideal bubble. The case fatality fatality rate varies from city to city, state to state, country to country. And what determines that number is whether or not the healthcare system gets overwhelmed. This is why you keep seeing those graphs about flattening the curve, trying to keep it... Like we're all playing some collective game of limbo below that ghostly dotted line. What is that line? The capacity of your local healthcare system. And here's the deal. Because case fatality rate is determined by whether or not we cross that line, you, you, all of us, we collectively are the ones who determine the case fatality rate literally every choice we make pushes that number up or down. We can take control of this virus by our collective actions and decisions. Now, back to the dotted line. The unfortunate thing is that in the US, our dotted line or dotted lines, as this really goes state by state, is lower than in other places. First, not everyone in our population is insured, so we will already have many more people getting sick from the coronavirus but not getting tested and they're spreading it to others. Second, even the insured may have financial reasons not to get tested with the same result, that they'll get sick and pass it on to others. Just before recording this, House Representative Katie Porter did secure a promise from the director of the CDC, Dr. Robert Redfield, that he will authorize free coronavirus testing for all Americans. I hope he follows through. But as I mentioned, I'm not sure how much that will help us now. So here's the other thing about that dotted line. Our doctors and nurses and other healthcare practitioners lack protective gear. Or enough protective gear. Unfortunately, a Washington Post article from Tuesday said that the national stockpile had not been replenished, uh, of face masks had not been replenished since 2009. Quote The Department of Health and Human Services said last week that the stockpile has about 12 million N95 respirators and 30 million surgical masks, a scant 1% of the estimated 3.5 billion masks the nation would need in a severe pandemic. Another 5 million N95 masks in the stockpile are expired. This means that we may see a larger percentage of our healthcare workers fall ill and have to be quarantined. So the number of doctors, nurses, etc. that we have to take care of those who do fall ill will likely not stay at current headcounts. This is also why I do urge people not to hoard face masks, Face masks, leave them for our healthcare workers. There is a shortage in supply due to manufacturing and supply chain issues being interrupted in China. Obviously, if you become sick with coronavirus, you absolutely should wear a mask. But until then, you have other means to protect yourself, whereas our healthcare workers do not. And they are one of our most important lines of defense against the virus. If you or any of your loved ones does catch the virus or has any other health issue in the coming months, wouldn't you rather deal with a doctor or nurse who had as many masks as they needed at their disposal? The other thing to understand about how crucial this healthcare system capacity line is and how quickly coronavirus can overtake it is that the healthcare system in Lombardy, where the Italian coronavirus outbreak began, has a rating from the OECD of 9.9 out of 10. 9.9 out of 10. That's like the Simone Biles of healthcare systems. I will put a link to this in the show notes, but I checked around for how various US states stack up and nowhere in the US comes even close to a 9.9 amongst the states I tested or checked. New York is at a 6.8, California 7.1, Illinois 5.0, Texas 4.8, Washington State where they've seen the earliest outbreak is 6.1, and Washington DC 2.0, Mississippi 0.6. Our health system capacity in the U.S. is much, much lower than Lombardy's for all the reasons I laid out above. We have much less margin for error. Which leads me to my next point. Despite all the ways in which we're off to a bad start in this battle, this is still something we can do to fight back and make sure the coronavirus has a minimal impact on our society. In any way you can, in every way you can, Start social distancing. And because we have basically run out of time, start now. Start today. This power lies in your hands. Anytime you have a choice about whether or not to go out, stay home. We individually have the power to bend that curve downward to a level that will not overwhelm our hospitals and frontline healthcare workers the sad fact of the matter is that here in the US, our leaders have failed us miserably. But now is not the time to focus on that. We citizens are smarter and more capable than they are. And we, by our actions, can take control and fight back this virus. And the answer to that is simple. Stay in do not spread this to others because you can spread it asymptomatically before you even get sick. Even if you never get sick, you can spread it to many other people. And if you are in a position of leadership where you can make that decision for others, absolutely do so and as soon as you can. One note, the cost of staying home will be different for some than others. For this reason, the government should compensate those who take a financial hit for the collective good. If I have any government officials listening to my show, I hope you can see that that cost would be dwarfed by the financial cost of letting the virus ravage as many lives as it would without your intervention. By paying a small price now, you stave off a much bigger and worse price in the future. The coronavirus is here, so no matter what, We will pay a price. The only question is whether the price will be in human lives or in financial aid. So to sum up, don't despair. Take care of yourself, number one. Stay informed and do your best to help out. The people on the front lines, the doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers who will take care of our friends, family, and ourselves if we fall sick or need to go to the hospital for any reason, whether it's the coronavirus or something else during this time. This is the most important thing we can do right now to keep the coronavirus from being as big a tragedy as it has been in Wuhan or Italy. We can do our best now to bend the curve to be more like Korea or Taiwan, Though our leaders have failed us, we have power in our hands. Make the right choice. Anytime you have the ability, stay in. If we beat this back, we can all go celebrate afterward. I'm going to leave you with a final few words, which are some selections from a really, really great must-read essay in Newsweek by um, a doctor that they say is in Western Europe, um, they say that she asked to remain anonymous because she has not been authorized to speak to the press, but this is just a really well-done essay. I urge you to read the whole thing. I'm just gonna read some parts. She starts by saying that in Italy, they kept schools open in the beginning. They kept going to the office, they kept traveling. Then she says, quote, fast forward two months and we are drowning. Here's how it looks in practice. Most of my childhood friends are now doctors working in North Italy, in Milan, and Bergamo, and Padua. They are having to choose between intubating a 40-year-old with two kids, a 40-year-old who is fit and healthy with no comorbidities, and a 6 year old with high blood pressure because they don't have enough beds. In the hallway, meanwhile, There are another 15 people waiting who are already hardly breathing and need oxygen. The army is trying to bring some of them to other regions with helicopters, but it's not enough. The flow is just too much. Too many people are getting sick at the same time. 40, 40, think about that. Then she says, until we're past the peak, the only solution is to impose social restrictions. And if your government is hesitating, these restrictions are up to you. Stay put. Do not travel. Cancel that family reunion, the promotion party, and the big night out. This really sucks, but these are special times. Don't take risks. Do not go to places where you are more than 20 people in the same room. It's not safe and it's not worth it. I urge you to read the entire essay. I've linked to it in the show notes. Stay healthy, everyone. Stay inside, in your home. Stay safe. Let's all work together for our collective good. Uh, it's a little weird to read the show credits right now, but I will do that. To learn more about Noel Atchison and Coindesk, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. If you enjoy these news recaps, okay, today's wasn't a news cream recap, but there will be a lot of links in the newsletter sign up for the real deal the weekly newsletter i publish every friday some of you have asked me for the links to the stories i mentioned on the show and now you can get them delivered right to your inbox go to unchainedpodcast.com right now to sign up unconfirmed is produced by me laura shin with help from factual recording anthony yoon daniel ness josh Durham, and the team at clk transcription thanks for listening